Right, amen. Amen. Buana Yesu Asafiwe. Amina. We're going to get this down. Okay. Galatians chapter 6. Um, in two weeks, we're going to begin a new series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, next week will be kind of a special one-time sermon, um, but today we're going to finish Galatians. And I just want to start by saying um, that Caleb did a, a really excellent job last Sunday with the first part of Galatians 6. Um, when I asked Caleb to preach, he said, what do you want me to preach on? And I said, just whatever you want, man. He said, can I take whatever's next in Galatians? He didn't even know what it was. And I was like, yes, you can. Yeah, great. So uh, he did a really good job. Uh, I appreciate that. And uh, he summarized verses 4 and 5 really well. And he said, don't compare yourself to others and boast in your own works. Don't gain your confidence by how you measure up to anyone else. That's not what God wants us to do. Because in the end, God is not going to be concerned on the last day with your own opinion about your own efforts, right? Uh, we're each going to be judged by God's standard, which means really that we'll, we'll either be found in Christ or we will be judged by our works or by the flesh, but we don't want that. <laughs> Union with Christ is safety. Standing alone in the flesh or with our works, that, that is actually death. We don't want that. And so today, we're going to finish Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to start verse 6. It says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I have to tell you, there's actually a missing conjunction in the English translation. And I don't know why they do this, but pretty much every translation does this. But verse 6 actually begins with the word but in Greek. So Paul adds this statement as an exception to verse 5, where he says, bear your own burdens, but, verse 6, but do share the burden of your teachers. And that word share is most often used in the Bible in a financial way. Now, it's very uncomfortable for me to talk about this, to be honest, um, but it's also a very common command in the New Testament, not something that was meant to be abused um, as it often is today, but the early church was expected to help support their pastors. Um, pastors are expected to labor in the ministry of the word, and the church is expected to provide for them. Now, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul compares the work of the pastor, when he compares the pastor to an ox. 
uh, in some place he calls him a workman, right? So the idea that we are toiling in the word, that we're working hard to shepherd the flock. And this verse may seem out of place, but you have to understand that Paul has said so much in this letter about false teachers that he doesn't want to discourage the ones who are actually doing a good job. And so he says, okay, I do want you to share what you have, you know, your good things with the one who teaches you the word. And as a side note, as a pastor, I want to say thank you for the way in which you care uh, for my family because you do. So thank you. Uh, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he or will he also reap. Now, you've all heard, we've all heard this, this quote, right? You reap what you sow. We use that quote in general to say that someone is getting what they deserve, right? You play with fire, you're going to get burned. That's usually what we mean when we say, you reap what you sow. But it comes from this verse, and it's, it's a concept that's used many times in Scripture, and Paul uses it here in the middle of a section. So if you look at the entire chapter, what this chapter is doing is it, it's explaining our responsibility to the church, to the church community. So he's talking about things like caring for your pastor or bearing the burdens of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's when Paul says, you reap what you sow. The type of seeds that you plant will determine the type of fruit that you harvest. That's what that phrase actually means. Okay? And we talked about this back in Galatians chapter 5. Paul is repeating this idea here for emphasis. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he's, he's still talking about the works of the flesh versus the works of the Spirit. One of these will harvest diseased fruit, corrupted fruit. The other will harvest life-giving fruit. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, spend some time on this. This is an important but slightly confusing message. Okay, so pay close attention. What kind of seed must we sow? Verse 9 tells us good works. That's the answer. Okay? But it begs the question, hasn't the Apostle Paul been arguing throughout this letter that we should not be focused on our own good works? 
So what do we do about this? Well, remember from Galatians 5, there were two lists. The first list was a list of sins. The second list was the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace. Remember, we said that both of those lists are highly relational. We talked about how sin is never a victimless crime, right? Our sin always hurts people. It always does. Even the things we do in secret has an effect on other people. Likewise, the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we produce alone by ourselves somewhere, right? Each of those aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is something that can only be experienced. It can only be harvested in community, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in your church. And so what I want to suggest to you is that this chapter is nothing more than an application of what he said in chapter 5. Paul is not urging us to focus on producing good works apart from the Spirit because that would be a return to works righteousness. Instead, he's encouraging us to simply be who we are in Christ, to live out the life as we are walking by the Spirit, walking by faith, right? That's what he's, he's saying. And I want you to notice the language. He's encouraging here tireless effort. Do not grow weary of doing good. Do not give up. Okay? Sometimes we make the mistake in gospel-centered churches of thinking that faith in the gospel eliminates the need for effort. And that's foolish. We are expected to work. Christians are expected to work tirelessly, toiling, doing, okay? But the question is, why do we work? Why are we doing this? What is the goal? What is the purpose, right? It's not, as Paul has so clearly argued, it is not to gain standing with God. Nor is it, as Caleb taught last week, nor is it to compare ourselves to others and feel better about what we're doing or worse about what we're doing, right? That only produces pride or shame. It doesn't actually help us in any real tangible long-term way. So what is the purpose of this Christian effort that Paul is calling us to? Well, I want you to think about the illustration that's being used throughout this chapter. This paragraph is an agricultural metaphor. 
And that's something that most of us in this room, with the exception of Seth, maybe a few others, we don't relate to this very well at all, right? Because how do we get our food? We go get it at the grocery store, or now we don't even have to go. They deliver it to us. They'll drop it off in our driveway, right? But even if you go to the store, you don't even have to talk to a person. You just scan it yourself and take it home. And you have no idea where that food came from, <laughs> who grew it, you know, what, what went into making it. But when I was in Africa, I saw a lot of farming. And most people outside of the major cities, their entire lives are, are subsistence farming. That's how they survive. They eat most of what they plant in their yard. Um, or the community, the village, will share and barter with one another, right? And so one person grows the corn and another person grows potatoes, and somebody else grows the greens. And then, you know, each village that we went to, I mean, there were cows and chickens and goats just running around everywhere, right? And I don't even know how they keep track of who belongs, what belongs to, but, but this is what they do. And so all together, the village has what it needs to survive. And what I realized, I mean, I knew it, but until you see it, it's hard to just kind of take in most of the world does a lot of work just to eat. And so now these verses and a lot of the, a lot of the illustrations that Jesus uses and, and a lot of the language in the Bible only makes sense when you look at it from the perspective of a farmer or someone who's literally having to grow their own food to survive. And so this took on new meaning for me because it's, I think it's closer to what people, what they're doing in Africa and in many places in the world is closer to what they were doing in the first century to survive. If you want a harvest, then you better work, right? If you want to share in the blessings of the village, then you better have something to bring to the table in order to get what you need for your family. And I think that, brothers and sisters, that is the context of these good works in the, in the right sense, okay? Not in the earning it for righteousness sense, but in the sense that in Christ, it, it's not any longer about religious effort. It's about the community. It's about the village. And in our individualistic Western minds, when we hear good works, we are only thinking about ourselves. And that, the, that's the reason that it's so, it trips us up and we get confused by this. This is about the family. It's about the body of Christ. It's about the relationships that God is building in His church and in Christian families. I'm working not for myself. I'm working for my family.
my church. And so if you separate the concept of good works from, those, from these relationships, then you're back to square one. You're back to that selfish, self-focused works righteousness again. And that kind of effort only leads to division and discouragement and doubt. And so whenever the Bible encourages us to do better, I want us to think of it in the context of your relationships and not in terms of your personal salvation. That would be, that's the wrong way to think of it. Okay? Or as Paul says in Galatians 5, what is, what is it now that matters? It is faith expressing itself through love. And that only happens with people. You see it? Verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. I love this personal touch. Paul says, I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that you may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he's saying this false teaching is not rooted in a concern for Christ or his church, the people. Instead, it's selfish, it's prideful, and it's cowardly. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, you're being used. You're being used. And this is always the problem with works righteousness. People tend to reduce the law to a list of things that they find personally easy to keep. And then what they do is they judge everyone else by their short list of important things. But they're not keeping the whole law and that makes them hypocrites. That's what Paul is saying. And I want you to understand this is a problem for everybody. This is not just a, a religious people problem. It's both a religious people and a non-religious people problem. It's not just a church problem, okay? Every human on the planet, we all prefer our own brand of ugliness. We're more comfortable in our own ickiness. Than, than anybody else's, okay? So religious people, what that looks like is religious people tend to look at outsiders and judge them for their worldliness or their, their lack of morals, right? But what do non-religious people do? They tend to look at religious people and judge them for their pride and their exclusivity, right? And the irony is they're both doing the same thing. 
both groups are making the same mistake by thinking that they're better than others because of what they're doing. I'm glad I'm not like those pagans out there. Well, I'm glad I'm not like those churchy people, right? Same thing. The root problem is the same because no one wants to believe that they really have a sin problem. No one wants to believe that really and truly if they were to stand before a holy God, they deserve to be smited. Nobody really wants to believe that. And so we boast in our own works, whatever they are, the religious kind, the non-religious kind, whatever, we boast in those things to feel better about ourselves. And so now we come to Paul's beautiful summary of this entire letter, verse 14. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that the cross levels the playing field. It eliminates all competition in the flesh. We no longer boast about what we do or don't do. We now, as Christians, anchor our self-worth to the cross, which is an external point of reference. So to put it bluntly, what he's actually saying is, y'all, there is no competition between circumcision and crucifixion. Crucifixion is a wounding of the flesh far more severe, right? The new reality for the Christian is a righteousness that is available to us only in the brutal death and miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. And compared to that, your works are nothing but monopoly money. They, they have no real value. And then verse 15 is uh, the coup de grace, if you will. So he says... These churches, they're debating the merits of circumcision. And Paul, Paul just rips the rug right out from under the entire debate. How many of us, raise your hand, how many of us would take the time to clean the toilets in a condemned house? Anybody? Would you change the tires on a car that doesn't have an engine? If you got fired from work tomorrow, would you go back in on Tuesday to finish the project that you were working on? <laughs> of course not, right? That is what he's saying. That's the foolishness of works righteousness. It's taking pride in something that has no value for you anymore. It's effort that, that is meaningless. 
And so together he's saying we find our value only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's talking here about the whole church, one group of people together walking by this rule of faith and practice, the rule of faith, the teaching of the gospel, He's giving the Gentile Christians the same value as the Jewish Christians by saying that we, this entire group, we are all children of Israel by faith. Verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul, of course, had suffered a lot of persecution for his faith in Christ. Um, He probably had many permanent scars on his body to show for it. And so just as the physical suffering of Jesus proved his love for the church, so also the scars of Paul proved his commitment to Christ and the gospel. Verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. So... That's the book of Galatians. Um, Pure grace, completely untainted by any notion that we can add something to the finished work of Jesus. I want you to know that every other religion in the world is somehow about personal effort. That's how we get saved. And because of that, every other religion is death is none of them work. There was, um, there was a mosque located about a block away from our hotel in Tanzania. And five times a day, a man would start chanting over the loudspeaker. It's the Muslim call to prayer. And about half I think about half the residents of this community were Muslim. Uh, Islam is a religion of duty. It's a religion of tradition. In fact, the word Islam means submission to the will of God. Right? So the, the ultimate goal of the Muslim is... What they're trying to achieve is they want to bring their entire community, their towns, their villages, their cities, they're actively trying to bring all of those people under the submission of their God, which is why they broadcast their prayers to the whole city. It's basically them saying, we're coming for you. Now, As interesting as that is, and as obvious as that is, you know, you go into a community in a lot of these places and it's, you know, you know that Muslims are there because you hear it, right? But other than that, I saw little evidence of good being produced by the presence of Islam in that community. In fact, in one of the villages that we visited, most of the elders in that little village were Muslim. 
And when we went to, to talk to the, to the village, um, most of the village came out um, to tell us about their experiences and um, because the, this ministry had put a well in the town and some other things. And it was the Christian church that brought a water well to their village so that the women didn't have to walk more than three miles to get water every day and then carry it back on their heads. It was the Christian church that offered training on agriculture and business that dramatically raised the quality of life for the entire village in the last five years. It was the Christian church that helped establish a health clinic and a school in this village. It was the Christian church that empowered women to start contributing more to the local economy, which then had the side effect of breaking generational abuse in their homes. And we got to hear testimonies which included some of these Muslim leaders, these elders, saying that they were proud of what their village has accomplished and they confessed that they know it was because of the Christians. God's grace changes lives. It motivates us to work differently to live differently, to love differently. I have even more faith in that being true today than I did a few weeks ago. I understand better what it means when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the good things that we want to see in our lives, in our marriages, in our communities, these things come to us only by grace through faith in Jesus. It's different. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the letter to the Galatians. We thank you for the message of pure grace that motivates us um, to live lives that are changed, that are different for your glory, for the good of others, not so that we can feel better about ourselves or get glory for ourselves, um, but so that we can bring honor to the one who sacrificed everything for us. None of it we deserve. We confess these things to you. We pray that we would be a church that is shaped by the truth of the gospel, that we would be a church that is eager to toil for one another in good works, not taking advantage of the grace that is offered to us in Jesus, but, but being motivated 
to respond to your work in our lives with, with diligence, with, with intentionality, with, um, with perseverance, Lord. Help us to pour ourselves into the work so that more might know the name of Jesus, who he really is, not who they think he is. We pray this in Jesus' name.